and good morning, Gary. Good evening, Jonathan. And how are you on this fun? <laughs> oh, okay. We're keep talking going. over no, each other again. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing fine. I finished an essay in two days, which I am going to pretend to have taken six months to write. And this is the warmest January 6th or something in Chicago in years. It's been uh, almost balmy here. I was out without a jacket today. It's, it's, it's lovely non-winter weather. Excellent. It's actually uh, after a warm week and with another you know, hot week ahead of us where it was actually cool and there was a little bit of rain. We had enormous sort of thunder and lightning storms here a couple of nights ago. Uh, you know, with kids up in the morning at three o'clock in the morning, scared because of the house shaking from lightning and everything and thunder. So yes, quite oh, dramatic wow. weather here in here in Perth uh, of late at times. Uh, on, unlike sort of what's happening in in our science fiction field, because these, this is a quiet time in the year, Gary. It seems like a quiet time of the year, but it's not a quiet time of the year for those of us who are reading things that are coming out soon. Uh, because the the year begins to heat up very quickly uh, once well it always hits heat, the the webosphere uh, is that the word I don't know I don't know what the word is yeah uh, but the world of science fiction heats up quite a bit this time of year as soon as the Hugo nominations are open which they are now sure uh, and so you get a lot of people um, doing what Hollywood has done for decades and I um, I've, I've never read the Hollywood Reporter newspaper. Yeah. I've got friends in Hollywood who do, and uh, you get all these ads that say "for your consideration." Yeah. In fact, there's even a parody, uh, uh, fake documentary, doc mockumentary called "For Your Consideration," in which people run ads in the Hollywood trade papers saying you should consider this person yeah. for best supporting actor and so forth and so on. And now we've taken up the same habit in science fiction. The minute the Hugo nominations are open. All a lot of people, many of whom are my good friends, and they have every right to do that, and I'm grateful that they do it, uh, will Twitter or post or Facebook about all the things they've had eligible the previous year. Um, and I, I've done that myself, as a matter yeah. of fact. So I, I, I not only don't mind that, I appreciate that, because it does call attention to a lot of things that, uh, that need to be called attention to. Well, I guess, actually, it, this touches on a question that I don't know that I was going to raise this morning, but I saw various discussions on this topic go past during the week. Mm -hmm. I guess a question to, to ponder briefly is what's the etiquette of this? Because some people find it quite offensive and think that it's um, just you know, going out there and being all self-promotory and everything else. And then mm -hmm. other people think it's no big deal. Um, what, what's, what's your feel on it? Well, my feel is we, we're living in a um, uh, net sphere, webosphere, whatever we call it. The, the online world is for that. I mean, what is Facebook except self-promotion? What is Twitter <laughs> except self-promotion? People do this all the time. Um, and it's, 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 you, you have the right to ignore these or not ignore them. So, so I, find it, I don't find it offensive at all. I, found, I admit I found it a little bit awkward at first. And when I saw several, several people who I respect a great deal, uh, mentioning here are my things that are eligible this year. I thought, uh, can I bring myself to do this? And then I thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, from for myself, my, my take on it is this: I do one post once a year, and I try mm -hmm. to highlight the authors whose work is in my you know, has been in my books, as you know, mm -hmm. as well as. Um, 
you know, just promote things generally and also what I or we have been doing. I feel like I owe it to the people who've worked for me or worked with me to promote what they've done. So, you know, I published, mm-hmm. I don't know, 30, 40 short stories last year. And each of those stories deserve to be, con- you know, to be uh, considered in my opinion. And so I want to do whatever I can to get them considered on their behalf. And that then obviously has a corollary flow through advantage to me, I certainly admit. Um, but I, I think it's okay to sort of go out and say once, look, I did this. Here's the summary. Look at it if you want to. And then emphasize, as is my feeling on this, that it's and it does become a conflict, that I really think all of these awards are better if more people are involved. So I just want to get out there generally and say, read, consider, nominate, vote. Don't necessarily you know, do, do any of those things to me or my work, uh, but just do it generally because I think it's a great thing to do. I think it is. I think it's, I think it's useful. Yeah. And I, mean, I, I, I haven't seen anybody say, I'm going to defriend you unless you vote for me. No. Um, and, and, and nobody, by and large, is, is, is that, uh, uh, <clears throat> well, <laughs> is, is that self-serving? But being, well, I mean, one of the things that happens, uh, the Hugo Awards don't have a jury. Uh, so you don't have a group of people that you can send books to. And I'm saying this because I'm reading novellas and mm-hmm. collections of novels and things for the Shirley Jackson Awards right now. And a couple of years ago, I was reading things for the World Fantasy Award, as you have. Yeah. And journal editors almost, I think, or anthology editors, almost have a responsibility to do exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, Gordon Van Gelder, for example, I think he... Uh, would not mind my mentioning this very helpfully not only sent us the for the world fantasy awards the entire year's um fantasy and science fiction but with a very useful note saying these are not these cannot be considered because they're not fantasy yeah um and that was one of the more useful things that happened hearing from editors is very helpful to judges uh when you're a judge it seems to me that if you're one of thousands of judges as you are with the hugos hearing from editors is also very helpful you would hope so. Uh, and, I, and as I look around the field, I, I see um, a number of people doing it. I did see, and I didn't follow the whole discussion. I saw some discussion surrounding our friend and podcast listener Paul Cornell posting uh, on his blog that, that he had had a, a very good novelette published in Asimov's during the year and that it, it was eligible and a few other things. And people were getting upset. And I really think it was misguided. Uh, the um, disagreement with it. Yeah, I, I think. Being I, upset. Yeah, it's not the same as campaigning. I mean, I actually have a Hugo campaign I am considering launching, but. Oh really? Oh yeah, I do. I'll tell you about it in a second. But not this sort of thing. I think this sort of thing for me okay. is fine. And if anybody else finds it distasteful, I, I did my post. I you know I wouldn't want to offend you, but hey, ignore it. It's okay. Um, mm-hmm. My possible campaign is for best editor long form. And I was thinking that it might be interesting to campaign on behalf of, and he doesn't know that I'm thinking about this, Jeremy Lassen for Best Editor Long Form. And my reasoning goes something like this. Um, he's not been you know, a high finisher in these kind of awards, so he doesn't have that kind of great name recognition that maybe some of the other mm. book editors that we know do, and you know, so several of whom have... Um, actually removed themselves from consideration. You know, the Hartwells, the Nielsen Haydens, these kind of people. Um, But he had a great year. I mean, Jeremy Lassen in 2011 showed that he was a pretty darn good acquiring editor with the range of first novels and such that he picked up. Um, Mm. I think, you know, when you look at everything from the Stina Light novel through to the Cameron Hurley novel, through to the Will McIntosh novel, and a few other, you know, some others, 
then I think that kind of editing achievement deserves some sort of recognition. And so whether this is the entirety of the uh, campaign that I get around to having or not, if you look at the 2011 Nightshade book output, all of which he was the commissioning editor for, I think there's a, a convincing case that he should be on the ballot. I think there is, and that kind of campaign is not, uh, it's, it's not self-campaigning. No, no, no. Um, oh, I, I suppose, full disclosure, I suppose we should, you know, acknowledge that uh, the, the Eclipse series is, is being published by Nightshade, but but the first novel... Yes, yes, but one the Eclipse the, series is defunct, so, you know. Well, well let's not announce that yet. Let's <laughs> think about that. Yeah, but... Um, um, uh, he's my my well he's actually I work with Ross but he's nominally my editor on the best of the year series yeah so but yeah Jer but Jeremy does read yes. through the first novels Nightshade is getting a good reputation for promoting first novelists and so forth mm. and one of the general problems I have with that category and I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on this we on this are. cast talking about the Hugos again no. is that that's always struck me as the category which in the first place was long overdue when it was finally instituted. And secondly, the category that most Hugo voters know least. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. Somebody who's a high-profile New York editor is going to get uh, in the acknowledgments of a number of books. And there's 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 awareness of, of tour editors. And there's yeah. an awareness of uh, uh, Bain editors and so forth. Somebody who works for a small press is easily going to go under the radar with something along those lines. Sure. So that's mentioned. And there are other issues around awards and Hugo's and everything else that I think we want to discuss. But we have invited inveterate uh, Hugo expert Cheryl Morgan to join us later in the month. So we might postpone sort of any real yeah. further discussion of the Hugo's and actually the accompanying, well, not accompanying, but and the Nebula Awards, which are also open for nomination right now. Um, mm -hmm. defer that until the awards version of the podcast, or at least the Cheryl Morgan discussion, where we'll have that as part of it. I think that would be a good idea. Let's answer our mail, then. Well, yes. Glad you pointed that out. We did receive a comment in to, you know, in response to episode 82 of the podcast. Doesn't that make your head spin? Mm -hmm. um, I know. <laughs> now, Cam from Canada, a 20-something with interest in the field, wrote in with a, a very interesting and worthwhile email. And as part of Cam from Canada's email, right, he or she, and I don't know which, <clears throat> doesn't really matter, uh, said a random request. My Christmas reading consisted of the four volumes of Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, which I adored. I'm starting on the 87 sequel, Earth of the New Sun, as soon as I'm through doing with the, with the, the dishes. Uh, I obviously wasn't aware of the reception the series received when it was first coming out. I'd love to hear from both of you on how these books are received by the field, by the field, what your personal feelings are on the series, and on any observations you have related to their influence or legacy. I'm just looking for an idea of how these works are regarded by the field at large, since I have little reference. So, mm -hmm. this begins to take us to the topic which we will be addressing in coming months of one of the giants of our field, Gene Wolfe. What's your initial response to Cam from Canada? My first initial response to Cam from Canada is I am thrilled, uh, delighted, excited that someone uh, in his or her 20s is uh, discovering the Book of the New Sun uh, for the first time. It's a kind of experience in reading in our field, which you don't get to have very often. Mm. Uh, and it's a complicated, it's a dense, it's a extremely subtle set of books, um, which goes on essentially, I think, if you count the Book of the Long Sun and, and, and the various spin-offs or something like 10 or 12 volumes, I guess. Ooh, I, I think it's actually 13, Gary. 
13. When, seven, that, eight, when you add up the book of the new sun, the book of the long sun, the book of the short sun, and then you right. throw in uh, the earth is the new sun, I think. Earth is the new sun. Four, That's eight, nine, ten, eleven, no, twelve. Twelve books. It goes on for twelve. Okay, twelve. And I, the, those books need to be discovered by everybody who reads in this field because for, there, there are a couple of things uh, that are exciting about it. One is uh, I'm glad to know that they're uh, still being discovered. But those that, that's a set of books more than any other single set I can think that, uh, if not blurs, unites the boundaries between science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're clearly science fiction works. They're far future Jack Vance science fiction works. Well, explain that re- for, for Cam from Canada, because really what you're saying is they're in the dying earth tradition. Yes. And and Gene is very open yep. about acknowledging this. He cites Jack Vance. Uh, the two people he cites as having created him are Jack Vance as a writer and Damon Knight as an editor. Yeah. Uh, who he said grew me from a bean. Mm. Uh, and what I mean by that is that Jack Vance instituted a form of uh, science fiction, which is set in such a far distant future, Mm -hmm. with so many technologies having been created and destroyed and uh, and, and, and various magical forms, which may or may not be um, actual science fiction forms, that that, that the series reads like fantasy. The Dying Earth stories read like fantasy stories. Uh, And Gene Wolfe has picked up on that. And there's a point, actually, I think it may be in the Sword of the Lictor, I'm not sure which of the volumes, uh, uh, there, there's a very striking point in that uh, original trilogy where um, Severian or possibly some other character is, is is descending a cliff face and sees the layers, the, 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 the geological layers, which begin to look more and more like technology and civilization that we can recognize as being some descendant of our own. Mm. And it's just a great image of how unimaginably far in the future this is. Yes. Um, and that kind of thing is, I remember when I read it the first time, uh, was I thought, I, I was not a fan of secondary world fantasies you know, beyond Tolkien. I mean, I, yeah. I liked some of them, but, yeah. but suddenly realizing that a secondary world fantasy is also a work of science fiction opened up a completely new way of looking at it to me. Made me go back and look at Vance, which I hadn't mm. looked at in years and years at that point. Yeah, um, and I thought, okay, here's 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 a here's a book that can appeal to both the fantasy reader and the science fiction reader uh, in different but similar ways. Sure. I I, I guess and, yes. And I, I should mention yeah. since yeah. I get a chance to plug. No, go ahead and finish what you were. No, 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 no. You should, no, you, please. You're you're in the middle of a thought, so continue. Because I'm curious as to what the reaction was. Okay. Well, my reaction. Okay, well, my reaction. Okay. Well, first uh, of all, let me give you a. Uh, so oh, I want to give Cam a little. Uh, we're talking over each other again. Continue, Gary. Okay. Gary? Uh, no, you wanted to say something specifically to Cam. Well, I wanted well, okay, to get well, on what I really a want, specific well, event. I want yeah. Okay, well, you get on with your event, then I'll, I'll continue for you if it fits. It's just me- Okay, continue, yeah. Well, one of the things, Gene Wolfe uh, has been described by John Clute in an encyclopedia when he was still alive, which is... I suppose technically by encyclopedia rules, you're not supposed to say that this is the most important science fiction writer in the world, but I believe Clute said that in one edition of the Science Fiction Encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this was uh, this is not something that necessarily is meant to start a debate about who is or who isn't. But I live in Chicago, and Gene Wolfe lives in Barrington, which is a suburb of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And 
one of the things that uh, has irritated me as long as I've lived here is that uh, the mainstream literary world in Chicago, uh, which includes things like the Chicago Humanities Festival, has for the, mo for, for the most part yeah. not paid any attention to Gene at all. Yeah. Um, there is an argument to be made, which I'm perfectly willing to make and probably will make in public in a few months, that Gene is the most important writer now living in the Chicago area. Yeah. Uh, for his whole work. Finally, now, a couple of years ago, a group of young writers, when I was not actually involved in this myself, yeah. uh, instituted something called the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame, which is another institution that's long overdue. Chicago has a phenomenal history of writers from uh, Hamlin Garland to uh, L. Frank Baum to uh, Saul Bellow. And finally, uh, the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame is sponsoring an evening to honor Gene Wolfe on March 17th of this year, uh, which is going to be a, I think, a wonderful event. Neil Gaiman is coming in for it, Michael Swanwick, Audrey Niffenegger, um, Patrick O'Leary, um, Jody Lynn Nye, uh, a whole uh, a very interesting group of people. I get to be master of ceremonies of this yep. at a wonderful estate, and uh, some, some estate that has the country's largest collection of automated musical instruments or something, orchestrions and things like this, a real steampunk kind of an evening. Um, and it's the first time I've seen the city of Chicago or the Chicago region recognize Gene for his importance. And uh, I'm really excited about that happening. I'm proud to be part of it. And uh, Gene, who is, I believe, turns 80 this year, uh, is way overdue for this. So, so that event, which I just... So it's just now gone public. It's on my Facebook page if people want to look at it. Uh, together with hearing something from somebody in their 20s discovering Gene Wolfe is just, to me, utterly yeah. delightful. Yeah. Uh, and as, as we both know, Neil Gaiman is one of the great supporters of Gene Wolfe and a, an enormous fan of his. And A couple of years ago at a Worldcon in Montreal, uh, uh, Neil and I were, we had, we had a session where we were going to talk. The topic was we could talk about anything we wanted to. We spent the first 15 minutes of it I later learned from people who had been in the audience and apparently puzzled. We spent the first 15 minutes of it talking about how to read Gene Wolfe. Okay. Just so, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, thrilled at Cam. Thank you, Cam, for discovering these books. I think that's a great thing that they're doing, the the, 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 uh, the event, and something we can maybe talk about in future podcasts as well. Yeah. Um, it does occur to me that we haven't actually answered Cam's question at all. No, we haven't. How were the books originally received? And, what was your sense of them? Well, okay. This is where I'm sort of coming at. I want to give Cam a little bit of background. This is what I was going to touch on before. And that is, uh, Cam, if you're unfamiliar with Gene Wolfe, basically, Wolfe was already a good, probably, what, 10, 15 years into his career by the time he published The Shadow of the Torture, longer. I mean, he was publishing, mm -hmm. he had a couple of early stories out in the 50s, he, but he started his career really tr you know, truthfully in the in the mid 60s and was very closely associated with Damon Knight's Orbit Anthology series. Mm -hmm. um, you can tell that the field was you know, very aware of him as a writer through the 60s and into in through the 70s because he was nominated for, for a lot of awards and eventually started winning them. Mm. So, I mean, he won the he was up for the Nebula in 1970, so that's 10 years before The Shadow of the Torturer. Mm. Uh, he um, 
actually uh, was up for the Hugo, which means that there's a broad awareness of his work in the field. He's being um, applauded. So he's up for the Hugo, I think, once or twice before this happened. Uh, then he wins the Nebula in the early in the mid 1970s. So through the 70s, I mean, that was with uh, the death of Doctor Island, which was right. a very major work of his. And then you come to, and, and I think, the Shadow of the Torturer was his fifth or sixth novel published. I think. So he was well established. He was well known. He was well regarded. Even though I don't have the physical copies, I know that Locus reviewed the Shadow of the Torturer when it came out. I wasn't contemporary to it, so I don't know how it was received. I mean, I was reading the field, but I wasn't connected to the field in 1980. Very interestingly, in what has been widely described as a terrible Hugo Ballot year, uh, where I think Joan Vinge won for the Snow Queen, the Shadow of the Torturer was not a Hugo nominee. It was oh, a really? yeah, no, yeah. it was a Nebula uh, nominee, mm-hmm. and it was a World Fantasy Award winner, and it came third for the Campbell Award. So uh, it was also up for the uh, I think it was the runner-up for the Locus Award to the Snow Queen. Uh, was shortlisted for the Balrog, and it won the British SF Award, which is actually probably the most, in some cases, the most interesting thing about this is the Hugo's overlooked the book, but the mm-hmm. Nebulas and the British SF uh, awards recognized it as a science fiction book from the the Mm -hmm. get-go. I think it's fair to say, and I'd be really interested to hear someone who was really on the ground and keeping track at the time, and Charles would have been able to do this, but maybe Dave Hartwell or somebody actually touch on the kind of enthusiasm that was um, generated at the time for the book. Because when I encountered it, it was already at least three or four or five years after this, Uh, The book had been out. It had come out in a British paperback. It had a Bruce Pennington cover on it, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Very brown kind of cover of this tall fantasy figure striding out of the the cover with the the enormous black sword over his back, uh, Terminus Est. And I have to say, I bounced off it completely, Gary. I mean, I would have been 20 years old. I was reading David Mm -hmm. Eddings at the time, and I read the first chapter of it. I put it down. I read the first chapter of it again a year later and put it down. On the third go-through, I read it to the end, really enjoyed it, and never read it again. I have not read the, the, the concluding three books in the quartet, I confess. Weirdly enough, I have read the Book of the Long Sun and the Book of the Short Sun, but mm-hmm. not all of the Book of the New Sun. Well, to be honest, I haven't read all of the Book of the New Sun either. Um, <gasps> We're, I'm sorry. We're going to be a, uh, we're going to be kicked out, Gary. Well, here, here's here, my, my my excuse for not <laughs> reading classics in the field is this: when Charles Brown hired me for Locus and told me you have to read this and you have to read that, and I was not used to reading four or five books a month uh, for a review, and I the, the things uh, the reason the reason I finished um, the uh, actually the book of the Long Sun was I think just no the book of the New Sun I think was just finished when I was. Mm-hmm. At the time in the 1980s, doing a series of um, TV programs, cable yeah. TV programs for the Illinois State Library for some reason, and I had I had very much lobbied to have Gene on that program. And somewhere, somewhere circulating in public libraries in Illinois, there's a, a half-hour interview of, of, of myself interviewing Gene Wolf okay. uh, about at the time the the last novel had come out, possibly even before that. Uh, and I thought, okay, I'd better finish these things to to, to review them because I'd read I'd read The Shadow of the Torturer and then um, I'd somehow stopped in the Sword of the Lictor. I read the rest of the series uh, prior to the interview. And so I began to realize. So, hang on, so you've read all four of them? 
I've read all four of those. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I didn't finish. I've not read all twelve novels. To okay. be honest. Uh, and, and and to be even more honest, um, as impressive as those novels are, um, and, and as a kind of parenthesis here, my sense is when the books came out, to get back to Cam's question, mm. is that they were uh, uh, fellow writers read them with astonishment, mm. uh, the, which may explain the Nebula recognizing it more than the Hugo did that year. Sure. That when I heard uh, and I kept hearing from these from writers saying, "How can he do that? Uh, how is that done?" And writers wanted to really study the books for technique, for structure, for um, language, and that sort of thing. Uh, and, yeah. and I think I think fellow writers discovered the books more earlier than the fans did. Yeah. But my reading of Gene Wolfe began with uh, a book he published some years earlier called The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which, depending on who you talk to, is a novel or, or a collection of uh, novellas. Yeah. And I was absolutely stunned by that. I yeah. had not seen... I had not seen that beautiful a level of writing in the field at that point. Yeah. Uh, I thought those were just stunning books. And after that, I became an ad Arvid, avid Arvid. An Arvid. An Arvid follower, yes. An, 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 an Orbit. Well, um, this, is, this is a word which is halfway between Orbit and Avid um, of, of his short fiction. And I still am as, uh, I'm still stunned at what he can do with short fiction. When I looked at The Best of Gene Wolfe a couple of years ago for a review, one story after another was just, uh, you know, yes. seemed to me completely original, completely unlike the other stories in the collection, unlike anything else anyone was writing. It's true. Um, and in fact, what actually turned me on to Gene Wolfe as a reader was when reading the greatest anthology in the history of the world, uh, Michael Bishop's um, Light Years and Dark. Mm -hmm. Now, Light Years and Dark reprinted or featured a Gene Wolfe story called The Map. Mm -hmm. And the map is a very Book of the New Sunny kind of short story. And the same year, he also had out a story that was actually an F and SF, I think, called A Cabin on the Coast. So I encountered yes. those two pieces of short fiction very closely together. And they're both stunning and, uh, and, and effective and just, uh, just wonderful, wonderful work. Um, so, you know, I, I can... I, I actually have always felt that that's his more accessible... Um, kind of work and it actually touches on a related related kind of a thing and I, I've got sort of th various thoughts swirling around in my head but when we were going to when I thought about we might discuss this on the podcast I was going to sort of say to you sort of you know dear Mr. Wolf I am a science fiction reader but only a moderately clever one I am afraid that Gene Wolfe will be too difficult for me and I will not understand what it is he is trying to do in his devastatingly clever books because I've looked at the lexicon Earthus online and it tells me that I, only, I have to read 900 things to work out that Severian is actually his own grandmother or something based on the clues printed on the labels in the, in the food in the hold of book three or something. How do I possibly understand this work? I'm just a normal reader. It's a good question and my... Um um, I, I guess my my answer to that is is, is twofold. One is that there are uh, two ways of entering Gene Wolfe. If you've never read Gene Wolfe before, if you can if you can read as Cam has apparently, uh, and a reader I admire without knowing who this person is, uh, if you can read the uh, the Book of the New Sun and and get it uh, and understand how uh, wonderful it is, that's great. I was not able to do that at the time I encountered the book. Uh, my recommendation to people now who ask me, how do I start with Gene Wolfe? And this is partly recapitulating stuff that, that uh, Neil Gaiman and I said at, at Worldcon a couple of years ago. 
I would either say start with a short fiction or start with a Wizard Knight. Okay. Wizard Knight is very accessible. You can enjoy the Wizard Knight completely on the level of a heroic fantasy, and you don't need to really worry about the fact that, well, he's really dead for half the novel. Um, Gary, stop giving away the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know. You realize that if we were Galactic Suburbia, hello to everybody at Galactic Suburbia, um, we would have to have a spoilerific podcast, book club thing. We would have okay. to say, let's get together and read the Book of the New Sun as a book club project for the podcast. That's possibly true, but I also think there ought to be a statute of limitations on spoilers. Well, um, well, there is. I think twenty years is a good one. Actually, probably about. 20, well, I don't know. Actually, about twenty-four months. About twenty-four months probably would be good, actually. But yeah, yeah. I was on a panel discussion once in which somebody very cautiously warned against a spoiler alert because they're about to talk about Moby Dick. <laughs> it's okay. The whale wins. You know, does that mean you're not going to read the novel now? <laughs> Well, hey, I read a review yesterday of a science fiction novel, and somebody pointed out I flicked ahead. Uh, you know, because I always look, flick ahead to see how many chapters are in the book. I flipped ahead, and the only chapter with a heading on it was the last chapter in the book, and it gives away the ending pretty much. So don't do that. And you're going, well, I mean, <laughs> spoilers are spoilers. I mean, you can't worry about them too much. Well, I mean, we've had discussions about this. John Clute and I have had discussions about this, and John Clute is very much, very adamant about the fact that if he's discussing a book. He's discussing it as a critic, and he needs to say he needs to be able to he needs to have the freedom to talk about every element of sure. the book that that congeals in the whole at the end. Sure, and that's that's and obviously, that presents, yeah. and that's obviously yeah. what on, what underpins both the Galactic Suburbia spoilerific podcasts yeah. and equally the writer and the critic, where they do talk about it wholly. And I think were we, and I'm not saying we this, I'm necessarily proposing this to you, but were we to say do, do a discussion of the Shadow of the Torturer itself as an example. You would have to be able to say this book is 30, 31 years old. Mm, I guess it is now. Uh, no, in fact, it's thirty-two years old. It's thirty-two years old. Um, surely it's okay now to talk about the ending of the series. I mean, it's been done in detail anyway, but surely it's okay. And then you could talk about it. It would be an interesting exercise. I'm half tempted to suggest we actually do it, Gary. I don't remember the end of the series well enough to do it anyway. Um, it's. I, I, I think the elegance. It's like a, a, a metaphor I've used before in writing reviews. It's it's um, it's like origami. You know, uh, you look at it, you admire it. It's gorgeous and that sort of thing. And then at some point you get curious. How if I unfold this, it's a flat piece of paper. Yeah. Uh, and, and and that's true to some extent. And I think that when I'm reviewing a book, I'm I'm conscious of this because it's been called to my attention more mm-hmm. than once. Uh, that if I'm reviewing a book that no one else has read, uh, I don't want to interfere with the first experience of reading it. Uh, A contrast to that is a large number of readers, I assume, I hope, a large number of readers uh, read The Lord of the Rings after seeing the films. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming also that the films did not spoil the ending of the trilogy for them. (laughs) Or at least that you wouldn't care. Or at least you wouldn't care at that point, yeah. yeah. I, I was just thinking, I have an answer to my own question as well, Gary, about reading Gene Wolfe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the example that I'm going to use is a story that he published in a Pete Crowther anthology in 2002. Uh, Crowther mm-hmm. edited an anthology called Mars Probes, uh, a whole bunch of stories set on Mars. Mm-hmm. And Gene did a pulp adventure set on Mars called Shields of Mars. 
Uh, it was reprinted mm-hmm. in, the, in the Year's Best SF8 and in Star Wars Strains, Gene's own collection. And it's a pure pulp adventure. I mean, it's people with swords hacking at each other on Mars. And the truth mm-hmm. of it is, I don't know that there is another level to that story. But I'm sure it doesn't matter. You can read it absolutely straight as an adventure and not feel like you're missing some great, deep, extra thing. And where Gene's books are good books, and quite often they are great books, uh, if they're good books, they are uh, readable on the most sur- superficial surface level with nothing else. What makes them great books is that they have all those other layers, but they're good books because the top layer is rewarding in and of itself and shouldn't need you to go off and get a, a college-level education to appreciate. And that's why I come back to something like The Wizard Knight, which is very accessible, very oh, yeah. readable as uh, an adventure. And um, it's, it's, it's true about uh, a lot of uh, Gene's work that uh, a second or a third or a fourth reading uh, is, can be more rewarding. A lot of people don't want to do that or don't have time to do that. But the people who do that uh, find you know, a, a kind of an infinite of wealth of riches in those things. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are friends of mine, uh, some of the people who go to ReaderCon, one of the people who was uh, instrumental in organizing ReaderCon, Eric Van, can quote chapter and verse from the Book of the New Sun. He knows everything. He, he knows the entire <laughs> genealogy of Severian. I'm astonished at this. And, 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 he, and he talks to friends of his who, who know it as well. I mean, you know, knowing Gene Wolfe is like knowing how to play chess. <laughs> you learn the rules, and then you learn the infinite subtleties of the game. And I could not keep up with him. I confess that I, I'm, I'm not sure. I have this vague feeling that he would be vaguely horrified himself. I don't know. But uh, when I hear that, what I think is, I'm, I'm glad that they got that much pleasure out of the books. But I'm not attracted to it as, attracted to it as a life experience. I, I, if someone's a great writer, I should just be able to, and this sounds simplistic, just enjoy them. And I think with Wolf, you can. It's nice you can do the other stuff, but with Wolf, you can. Well, what we're saying about Gene Wolf, and I... I think there are relatively few other writers in the field that we could say this about, is that he um, he can be very entertaining and very uh, uh, read in, at, at a superficial level, but he also commands the kind of intense attention that a James Joyce commands. Yeah. Because when I hear these people talking about the book of, well, the entire, is there a name for the entire three trilogy series or whatever it is? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. The Books of the Sons. <laughs> yeah. And when I, people, when I hear people talking about the Books of the Suns with that kind of detail, it reminds me of talking to friends of mine in mainstream academia who talk about Ulysses the same way yeah. and who read it every couple of years and who get something new out of it every time. I mean, I, I think our, our field has room for works like that. Yes. And, and to be honest, I know people who, uh, who will read The Left Hand of Darkness and The Dispossessed yes. uh, over and over and over again, and there are you know infinite levels in that as well. Yes. It's an interesting game. Interesting. But we shall come back again. As we're coming back to the Hugos, I guess we're promising to come back to Gene Wolfe and maybe mm-hmm. discuss him in a broader and possibly even more entertaining way in future. With people who maybe are smarter readers of Gene Wolfe than we are. <laughs> I have to say, in my case, I wouldn't you know, be too surprised. I'd also say, since I'm glancing at a few things, it's interesting what comes back to, me- to memory. The first great Gene Wolfe story I actually read was Empires of Foliage and Flower, or one that I really loved. I just mm-hmm. remembered it. I, uh, it was published in a, a ridiculously ornate edition by Cheap Street Press uh, mm-hmm. as its first point, and it is related to the Book of the New Sun. In fact, I think it's supposed to be a story from the Book of the New Sun itself, and it's just magical. 
just a magical thing. So he's a, a, just a, a spectacularly good writer. What else has been going on in your science fictional life, Gary K. Wolf? Uh, I'm not done with it yet, but the next novel, I think I probably mentioned this last week, the next novel I'm very excited about is Caitlin Kernan's The Drowning Girl. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, I have not even written a review of it yet, and I've not finished the novel, so I don't want to talk about it, but there's there's something that Caitlin Kernan and Gene Wolfe have in common mm-hmm. uh, with a few other writers, and this stretches across the whole field of what John Clute calls Fantastica, and that is... Uh, in each of these writers' careers, there's been increasingly acute and precise control of language. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a tendency in, uh, there was a tendency in, in early Caitlin Kernan to, to create elaborate portmanteau words and to write feverish uh, kind of, um, I don't know, uh, French symbolist versions of, of prose which were beautiful, but sometimes you completely lost track of what was going on in the story. And her, her pro, and she can still do that. She can yeah. still do that whenever she wants to, but she does it in a very controlled and deliberate way now. I think early Gene Wolfe uh, tended to be very poetic, and now that's controlled. I think early John Crowley tended to be very poetic, and as his career has gone on, he's learned more and more precise control of uh, the way he uses language. Yeah. And I, I think it's something to be celebrated in our field that there are people who are that aware of language at that level. Yes, very much. And all three writers who are still, I mean, for, for a man who's now, what, nearly, it'll be 82 in a few months, or 81 in a few months, uh, Kiernan, who's in the midst of her career, Crowley, who's like later in his, her career, all showing you that it's something that you can come to and, and work to, evolve to, and end up being quite extraordinary to read. It's it's one of the things that's interesting because other writers who we probably should not go into in detail, um, there are other writers who have had very successful in their career, careers in the field, essentially repeating and refining what they did earlier, but not necessarily refining the craft, if that's a fair way to put it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and they can become legendary writers in a way, but they're writers who essentially we will always remember for their works at a certain point in their career, and later works are, are echoes and re-echoes of that point in their career. That's a very you know, tough topic to discuss diplomatically, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, I have writers in mind, and I don't know if I should even <laughs> go in that direction. Yes, th- this is where, I, for examples and analogies, I tend to sort of flee to sort of music or movies or something, because you can sit there and, and talk about whether so-and-so is still recording great records, sort of... 20 years after their prime, but if you well, t- turn around well, we, and ask if a certain sort of Nebula Award winner from the mid-1980s is still connecting, that gets a bit more personal. Well, I think one way to talk about it is to talk about writers who are dead. Sure. And uh, there are writers in the field whose reputations um, may be fading because of the career's following a pattern like that. Yep. Uh, I Okay, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and I'll mention one writer who I admired and had a very significant impact on the field in ways that he didn't even predict. It was Gordon R. Dixon. Fascinating you should mention him. He was on the tip of my tongue. Oh, excellent. Um, because Dixon, and I met him a couple of times, and he was a very serious writer, very literate man, uh, grew up in the astounding school of the 50s yep. uh, under the influence of John Campbell, uh, created... Uh, the Dorsi, which became uh, 
by by many accounts the you know the the origins of all kinds of alien warrior races, yes. including the Klingons. Yes. So he had a huge influence, and and began writing his magnum opus, the Final Encyclopedia. Yeah. Uh, and essentially, what that was was a continued continued extension and expansion of what he'd been doing since the beginning of his career. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, I think today I don't know if very many people read Gordon Dixon. I, I, it would be interesting. I, my, my, I think he's the the Dorsai books are still in print, off the mm-hmm. top of my head without having uh, checked them. The, I will now say, and this is at risk of turning this into we just talk about awards all the time podcast. What's interesting is this very comment ties into our previous topic, Gary. Really, we we could have had a little two wheeled thing to go from one to the other that uh, if we'd wanted a little segue. If if we had only planned. If we'd only planned. Because it, it, it addresses the subject of the 1981 Hugo Awards prevented, presented in Denver, Colorado, mm-hmm. where Gordon R. Dixon won two Hugos. He won the best mm-hmm. novella for Lost Dorsai. He won uh, the best novelette for The Cloak and the Staff. Now, it ties in, however tangentially, because this is the year when The Shadow of the Torturer was not nominated, and mm-hmm. when Joan Vinge's The Snow Queen won... And the other books on the ballot were Beyond the Blue Event Horizon by Fred Paul, Lord Valentine's Castle by Bob Silverberg, Ringworld Engineers by Larry Niven, and Wizard by John Varley. And to go out on a limb, none of which are really a, a touch on the quality of The Shadow of the Torture at all. No. And since you mentioned Dixon, and I think actually this ballot is a, is a huge generational change ballot. You know, mm. he, he wins. What's he up against? Nothing much. All the Lies That Are My Life by Harold and Ellison, The Brave Little Toaster by Tom Dish, Night Flyers by George Martin, and One Wing by Tuttle and Martin in novella, almost all of which are better than Lost Dorsai in life. Exactly. Uh, but the Dorsai was at the center of the field at that time. Yeah, and for novelette, well, no, I don't think it was. This is my thing. Bear with me. Okay. Um, novelette, he wins against The Autopsy by Michael Shea, Beatnik Bayou by John Varley, one of his last strong stories. The Lordly Ones by Keith Roberts, Ugly Chickens by Howard Waldrop, and Savage really? by Barry Longyear. What it, and, and in fact, it, winning in Best Short Story is Grotto of the Dancing Bear by Cliff Simak, and this is why it ties together. This mm. is the death knell of that generation's voting. I believe you're right. Um, uh, and if you look just next year, the next year to, to compare it, I mean, Paul Anderson wins for the Saturn game, which I think is probably his last win or close to it. But mm-hmm. what, what's up? Claw of the Conciliator's up. Little Big is up. Um, uh, Down Below Station wins. Now, Simak is on the novel ballot, and there's a little bit of... But this, but this is that transition period. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because I don't think Dixon died that long after. I, I don't really have the information in front of me, but I think it was the mid-'80s he died, or early-'80s. That's right, yeah. Uh, maybe mid-'80s. So... Um. You know, and I do. I, I think that to some degree, rightly or wrongly, and I, I'm I'd have to really go back and read it, it. His work has dropped from currency, absolutely, undeniably. I think that, uh, and, and 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 to some extent, that work and the work of other writers, some of whom are still alive, mm. uh, has has entered into science fiction history, and and the historical parts of their oeuvres are the parts that get rediscovered. Okay, I will go out on a limb and mention a, a living writer, Larry Niven. Uh, Larry Niven has had a career which has included national bestsellers mm-hmm. uh, and hugely successful works. But by and large, I am guessing that if we talk to friends who are in their 20s now, uh, the first thing they're going to hear about is Ringworld and the Ringworld sequence. 
Sure. Uh, because it was a massive concept that had a huge impact on the field, arguably uh, influenced later writers like Stephen Baxter, who thought, how can we make this even bigger, uh, or Bob Shaw. And, and yet the, 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 later, the later Niven and Purnell novels, the, the Inferno and that sort of thing, are, are not the ones that people are going to come to first. No. Uh, sir, well, it's interesting because looking back at the history of it, if I recall, the core of what we would consider as major achievement starts in the mid to late 60s, runs through to the early to mid 70s, roughly. Yeah, the, the, the known space series, essentially. Yeah. And there, you know, there's the body of short fiction, which he says sort of arrogantly but humbly that is collected in uh, The Best of Larry Niven that I edited the other year. Mm-hmm. And it's funny you should say that because I have a copy to hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it starts with, like, the coldest place. What's interesting, I think, is that he was working, he was, I believe, working closely with Robert Forward around this time. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of conceptual stuff to do with the real physics of store that he was using was was coming from discussions with Forward. And I believe that's true. I've never asked Niven himself. But subsequently, I think, there was a... Loss of vitality, maybe, or uh, a loss of vibrancy to, to what he was doing, and and it seemed like we were beginning to retread things as opposed to you know that primary great kind of influence that he was having at that in the early, in, through the sixties and seventies. You know, the later work seems less vital. It seems le- you know more derivative, I guess, uh, and more kind of I'm now going to expand on what I did before. I will write three more Ringworld novels, mm. and I will um, do more Draco's Tavern stuff, because that's fun, you know. And I don't say, say this to put down Niven, or at, even mildly to undercut the enormity of the achievement that he had in that 60s and 70s period, because I strongly feel that that flush of short fiction is one of the three or four great influxes of a short fiction career in the history of our field comparable to the great influx of work that, or body of work that uh, John Varley did in a short period of time, that Greg Egan did a short, in a short period of time, and mm-hmm. if you go back to, you know, to earlier examples. You know. so, so it's a phenomenally important body of work, but I think you're right. It, it, it uh, circles around the novel Ring World and not really any of the other novels. Well, I mean, and, and, and around this... that group of short stories that were collected in um, was it Inconstant Moon and, and, and uh, Neutron Star or whatever they were. That, that body of collections. Well, I was going to mention Inconstant Moon is one of the genuine classic stories in science fiction. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a great idea developed in, you know, with, with remarkable sensitivity. Yeah. Uh, and it's the sort of thing that he probably will be remembered. If, if, there, there are three probably Larry Niven reputations to talk about. One is uh, the, the large conceptualist, that is the yep. Ring World Engineers writer. Uh, there is the best-selling writer. The, uh, the the collaborations with Brunel, uh, which really I guess more or less began with the Moat and God's Eye, which was yep. supposed to be, but but that then actually led to national bestsellers. And I don't, uh, I I I, I, w- I would not question any writer who finds himself on the New York Times bestseller list if he yep. can do that. Uh, and the third are the, is the short story. Uh, yep. Niven was a great short story writer. I don't know if people. I'm, uh, I I appreciate your having done the best of Larry Niven, I don't know if most people today are going to enter into Larry Niven reading with the short stories, although they probably should. I, no, I, they, I still... they would probably come in from uh, Ringworld itself. That's mm-hmm. what you exactly. would imagine. Um, interestingly, I, th- I feel the book that's lost currency that, to me that was the great book of its time 
was the moat in God's eye. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember when that came out. That was going to be the big. That was going to be the stranger in a strange land of its year. That was going to be the big mainstream breakout alien contact novel for science fiction, and it was a very good novel. Well, there, I, I have my original copy in my hand, Gary. Even as we, uh-huh. because I'm sitting in my office and I can do that. And here, you know, it's 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 an old, you know, battered British paperback. But you know, you say that, you know, and it says on the back of it, the best novel about human beings making first contact with intelligent but utterly non-humans I have ever seen. Robert A. Heinlein. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and on the back, you know, a book to rank with June and Stranger in a Strange Land. And I tried to reread it a few years ago, and it struck me then as being clunky. Really? Yeah. Now, I may, may reread it now and feel differently. Uh, you have to be very careful about just how personal the suck fairy is when, when it comes to visit. Because I loved mm. that book when, it, when I first read it. I and, loved it when and, I and the, it. and the next five times or something, you know. I read mm. it a bunch of times. So it's a very dubious or a very careful criticism I would make. But it feels like it's a book that's, that's lost its currency. And when I look back at the uh, Hugo ballot, when it was up, because it was up for the Hugo in 75, um, mm-hmm. up against some books which haven't lost their currency for me, uh, and because it was up against Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, which is my personal favorite Philip K. Dick book, mm-hmm. and against um, The Dispossessed by Le Guin. Wow. Which is perhaps a fresher-looking book in 2012 than um, The Moton Guy's God's Eye is. It's one of the things that uh, is interesting, and it's an really interesting topic to devote a whole podcast to, but you do have writers uh, that whose whose major works don't hold up that well, but whose uh, less well-known works hold up much better. Yeah. Uh, I always think the English version of Larry Niven is probably Bob Shaw. Yeah. And we had the same thing. Okay. We had this. Uh, Orbitsville was outdoing uh, Ringworld. We're going to have you know an entire Dyson sphere now, and then there was a sequel to Orbitsville and so forth. And, and by and large, conceptually, those novels are pretty clunky now. I tried to look at Orbitsville the other day. And yet, some of the short stories, like Light of Other Days, one of the most heartbreaking stories in all of science fiction, are true classics. Yes. But he's somebody who's, you know, and I, the, the guy that I think of when I think of Bob Shaw is James White for some reason. Someone whose name has lost currency. Well, yeah. You know, um, I wonder how many people have ever read The Ragged Astronauts, for example, which was a later... Um, Shaw novel, yeah. or have read, um, as you say, like from other days, or any of his other short fiction. Uh, I guess this is one of the reasons that I remain attracted to short fiction as a form as well, Gary. It's an easy form of time travel. You know, you, that you can go back and sample bits of short stories much easy, more readily to me than you can great bodies of novels mm-hmm. and things. And perhaps see why an author was I think well started. You know. Oh, yeah. I sometimes wonder, I mean, this has come up before, and it comes up quite a bit in interviews with authors, when you've got a writer who, who does relatively little short fiction, mm-hmm. uh, and and you ask them why they do it at all, because uh, as, uh, for example, as Tim Powers will will, 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 will tell you, he, he spends so much work on a short story that he might as well have been writing a novel, and he gets a lot more money for a novel. Sure. Um, so why, why bother to do that? Well, one of the reasons to do that is that if somebody years later wants to get into your work, uh, a short story might be an entree. It might be a way in, as we've talked about with Gene Wolfe, we talked about with uh, with Niven and, 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 and with Shaw. 
and even even with Ursula Le Guin, who has um, as many classic novels as any living writer, uh, a lot of people today can get into her more easily through the short fiction. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, okay, I say yes immediately. All I would say to that is maybe, actually. I mean, we, we, we can reaffirm our own views very readily on this podcast. Well, yeah. Um, and I guess it might be perhaps better to say provides another easy avenue into the, into them because you know it's hard to say that if you're introducing someone to Le Guin that a Wizard of Earthsea or um, the Lathes of Heaven uh, would be a difficult entree into her body of work. Uh, whilst, and certainly you could say, well, the, was it the, 12, the, the Compass of Heaven or whatever it was? Or the, the, the collection? Uh, the, the, the Wind's Twelve Quarters? The Wind's Twelve Quarters. You, you know, it's hard to say that's a, that's a sort of a difficult entree. Uh, but I don't know that I would have sort of said to someone, you're better off reading The Word for World is Forest, or you're better off reading um, one of the Earthsea shorts or something, rather than one of the novels to get a feel. It, it, well, it's I tricky. Think... But the only thing with the Niven and Pornell thing is The Moat and God's Eye is a big book, whereas mm. you know the short stories tend to be quite tight by comparison. And one of the other things that uh, is uh, interesting when you talk about writers like Le Guin or, 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 or Gene Wolfe is that you're not talking about learning a writer's body of work. Novels can be very different from the short fiction. The short fiction can be very different from itself. So if, you, if, if somebody were to say to me, what's the one Ursula Le Guin short story I should read or the one Gene Wolfe short story I should read or uh, Crowley, actually Crowley, I can think of one, to understand their work, Mm. I, I'd say there's too much there's too much variety in the work to uh, to understand it. One story of uh, Le Guin's which I've taught a number of times is yeah. um, the ones who walk away from Omelas. Sure. Which is one of the great if if anybody is ever teaching students in a college class, that's one of the great teachable stories of all time. Uh, does it explain? Does it ex does it give you any particular entree into the Left Hand of Darkness or the Wizard of Earthsea or uh, the Disaster of the Lathe? Probably not. It's a, it's a completely original kind of story, and it works by itself. So the the writers that I think of as the, the ones who are going to have these decades of new dis, new readers discovering them are the ones who don't write the same things over and over again. Lord, I uh, thought you were going to say decades of nudists for a second there. Um, oh, that's decades of nudists probably don't be. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's one example that I would look at here that you just touched on uh, that is sort of interesting for me is Crowley. Mm -hmm. uh, Crowley, I adore his short fiction, but have mm -hmm. never completed reading a novel. Really? Yeah. Absolutely adore the short fiction stories like snow and the rest that were uh, collected uh, a couple of years back. Absolutely astounding body of short fiction. In my opinion, I love antiquities. I love great work of time. Uh, I love the girl's hood of Shakespeare's heroines. Mm -hmm. Just brilliant, brilliant work. The novels, I mean, I tried to read Little Big and found it something that was close to me. So I didn't read any of the sequels because there didn't seem much point. I tried Engine Summer. I tried The Deep. And I eventually kind of went, yeah, these novels aren't for me. The short fiction, I love it. I, had, uh, I was going to say when Crowley is the one person I would probably uh, send people to great work of time. Uh, yeah. To understand, because a lot of what happens in a lot of his fiction and so forth uh, is there, and, yeah. and and you're right uh, about the other short fiction. Yeah. One of the interesting things about him and other writers is very little short yep. fiction. To work Sorry for that. Yep. Uh, and 
the he and Tim Powers, for example, are two examples of people who write very little short fiction. Yeah. Jeff Lyman doesn't write enough short fiction. No, no. Uh, but in Crowley, I, I, I was enchanted by Little Big. I have to admit yeah. that. Uh, when you talk about uh, Engine Summer, I remember reading that before I knew who Crowley was. It was just a science. It was a Bradbury-esque, somewhere between Bradbury and Vance science yeah. fiction, which I thought was very pretty. I liked it a lot, but I didn't realize how uh, important a writer he was going to mm-hmm. be. And, and, and when we get to his uh, last three or four novels, I've loved all of them. And some yeah. of them had problems. I had pro- Lord Byron's novel uh, had some tonal and structural issues with it, I think. Yeah. Uh, but by the time we got to, and I'm, okay, now I'm blanking on his World War II airline, aircraft construction. Didn't read it. Didn't yes. Read it. Okay, but it, I thought it was just beautiful from beginning to end. The yeah. problem was it's not a fantasy novel in any particular way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's he, he's one of the writers who I would read. Um, I would read whatever comes out from him. And, yeah. and it, I may not like it, but I will read it because I, I don't know what it's going to be. All I can um, say is if we keep up this topic of conversation, we're going to end up having to inflict a book club upon ourselves just to make ourselves revisit some of these issues and see if we can correct the holes in our own reading. And I'm not sure we have the time to do that. I don't know if we have the time to do that or not. <laughs> you see, um, let's go out and, and manfully reread or personfully reread very short books. Four Freedoms is the your Crawley novel, this title I was trying to think of. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and one of the other things that, well, well, here's the other thing. Do you follow, as a reader, do we follow a genre or do we follow individual writers? Uh, some yes. of Crowley's most important books are not science fiction or fantasy books. Some of his most important stories, The Girl Heard of Shakespeare's Heroines, are yeah. not really fantasy stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do we take time away from our genre reading to follow a particular writer out of the genre? Of course, definitely I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and wouldn't hesitate to. Never have. Uh, when I fell in love with Lewis Shiner's work, I didn't really care thereafter what he was writing. Uh, I can think of a number of examples. Kay Wilhelm. When, when she went from writing science fiction primarily to writing mysteries primarily, I went off and read her mysteries because they were terrific. Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, who's always going to be that kind of liminal character who, or writer who drops in and out of the genre as pleases her, and quite rightly so. Um, so no, once, once I fall for a writer, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Unless they touch on something that I just personally greatly dislike. you know, sort of. If I were to turn around and find that... Oh, I don't know. Tim Powers decided to write Splatterpunk. I might be a little bit, yeah, you know, reticent because that's not my thing. Oh, I'd be first in line for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can cause trouble. Anyway, yeah, I know. We, but uh, I think what we're talking about here is that there are um, um, writers, and all the ones we've mentioned, and I think this is true of Crowley, I think it's Fowler, I think it's true of Fowler, I think it's true of Kate Wilhelm, um, that uh, and, and it's true of some writers, by the way, in parentheses, in your current year's best, you have a couple of stories in there that when you get through them are not really fantastic stories. Well, uh, you, even as in don't have genre elements or don't have, uh, there aren't any good. No, no, they have genre settings, but there are a couple of stories, and I, I don't have the table of contents in front of me. We should talk about this. I don't want to be spending too much time talking. They're, they're set in what is an imaginary kingdom, but nothing particularly magical happens within the story itself. Okay. And that doesn't bother me at all either. Yeah. Uh, I'd wondered if the case that the one you were thinking of was the Neil Gaiman story that opens the book. Uh, actually, that's only one of them, but there were a couple of others. Uh, if I can reach my pile of notes. Uh, can, I, can, I just, can I just say, 
you know, Neil Gaiman, Neil Gaiman has Sherlock Holmes conquered death. Yeah, and it's uh, partly uh, set in China and so forth. There's a. Um, um, but I, hmm. I, I think that's enough, isn't it? You know, in the case the of okay, there's a K.J. Parker story which takes place in an imaginary kingdom yes. and has a lot to do with uh, yeah. a composer who is uh, also a, a, a vicious murderer and a horrible person. Yeah. It's a wonderful story. Thank you. Uh, and it occurred to me partway through reading that story. Well, this is an imaginary kingdom, but this is not a magical story. Yeah, I would say it's true that uh, quite often with Parker, particularly. Uh, Parker will use fantasy settings to tell straight stories. I think that that's absolutely true. Now, and I don't think he's the only one to do that. No, 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 no. And do I think that's a legitimate tactic? Yes, I do. Do I think it falls within the sphere of our field? Yes, I do. Do I think that it's legitimate to include it in a book like The Best of the Year? I absolutely do. Um... I'd like to think that our field is broader, is broad and deep. And if it's broad and deep, then it includes that. And also, once you start pulling out the you know, ye olde genre purity test kit and start mm. sort of you know testing your stories, I think you, you you begin closing the field up in a very unpleasant way and closing it off to growth and evolution. And I think that's well, a bad, yeah, bad yeah, thing. To I'm, do. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not arguing. No, 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 no. But I'm just. What, what the point I'm making, and, and you're right, absolutely. We, we would we would end up if, if you if you come up with a litmus test, we could easily find uh, definitions that would exclude Mervyn Peake and Peter yeah. Dickinson and all kinds of writers who use imaginary kingdoms. Um, my point is that there is a there's a quality of writing, and I've never been able in years of writing reviews and criticism to articulate this. There's a quality of writing which you will see in uh, these writers we've been talking about. Uh, which seems fantastical even when it's not. Yes. Uh, when you take a very mainstream novel like Karen Joy Fowler's Wit's End, mm. which is a, a humorous novel about a, a, a mystery writer, uh, it's not a fantastic novel. It has the feeling of fantasy yeah. to it. When, when you read a mainstream story by Crowley, the girl heard of Shakespeare's heroines, there's a magical glow to what happens in sure. that story, there even is. though it's not a fantasy story. Yeah. Uh, Peter's story, well, my friend Peter Straub has written lots of horror stories in which nothing supernatural or horrific, well, there may be horrific things in them. Yes. Kelly Link has written stories which we're not yes. sure whether they're mainstream or not. So yes. there is a, there's a tone, uh, a pattern of language, a pattern of imagination in even mainstream fiction that appeals to those of us who like fantastic fiction. Yes. I think that's true. I think it's very true. And I think and Parker's another example of that, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, Parker is actually a very interesting writer to follow uh, and has evolved a great deal over the last five or ten years. And I, mean, I, th I think the Gaiman story is fascinating. He had two stories out this year, and I think that, personally, I think that one's by far and away the better of the pair. Mm -hmm. uh, and is his second great in intersection with uh, Sherlock Holmes, because he also did a, wrote a study in Emerald, which you may recall. The Lovecraftian Holmes yeah, story, yeah. yes. Um, and this this story I think is quite lovely, and I I hope someday he will write you know like a third home story uh, to tie it all up because I feel like it would work very nicely. But the, I was really taken with the story. I read it in San Jose. I was in the dealer's room and came across an anthology, a study in Sherlock, I think it's called, mm -hmm. which was edited by Les Klinger and Laurie King, and mm -hmm. read that and was just captivated by it. I mean to the extent where I asked on the spot if I could include it in the year's best because it was, it was so good. 
So yeah, he does something in the story, just as a footnote to the story, and uh, I don't know if I, I'm not a Sherlockiana reader, so I don't oh, know all variations of, but I don't recall having read a story that was narrated by Sherlock Holmes before. Ooh, I doubt. I I don't know. I don't know that Doyle ever wrote one. But Doyle, I'm, I'm fairly certain Doyle. Yeah, didn't. yeah, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me that that, that was the case. But it's a lovely piece. It's a great story. It really is, yes. So, Anyway, on that cheery note, Gary, I don't know that we've been rambling, though we're chaotic as usual, but we are probably getting to, well, at the end of our allotted time and should probably consider wrapping it up and leave others, you know, leaving these fascinating topics to readdress once again in future podcasts. I think we should come back to them and we should come back to some of the issues that we clearly don't know what we're talking about and get some <laughs> guests on who do. That sounds like a wonderful idea. Well, with that happy note, Good talking to you, Gary, as always. Good to talk to you, and we'll talk to you again next week. Take care. Bye. Goodbye.